I really believe that knowledge about your fertility is going to give you power, but honestly, options. It's like about optionality. It's understanding where am I at now? Where do I want to be in a couple of years? My fertility. Do I want to have kids? Do I not want to have kids? If I know that I don't want to have them, should I plan for them now? Because I'm, I'm certain that they're going to come. And I think this is just one more thing that women can do to alleviate stress and anxiety and let them really ascend in whatever field they are, whether that means you just want to travel more or you want to you know, really have a big career. It doesn't have to be one narrative and that's the other misconception. It's just so that you don't have to give anything up. Dr. Katha Fisher is a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist, as well as a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist. Her personal practice ethos is that patients deserve both exceptional clinical care and a compassionate patient experience. She launched the New York City location of Spring Fertility to bring that intersection to the heart of the city and is continually supporting women along their fertility journeys. Coming up, Dr. Fisher explains her early desire to be a physician and study infertility in women who have survived cancer, the importance of advocating for yourself in every medical situation. Dr. Fisher shares her passion for personalized and compassionate care. She shares a look at the options available for women who wanna take control of their fertility journey. And finally, how an overall increase in knowledge around your fertility can improve your health at any age. This is the Entreprenista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Dr. Fisher, I am so excited to have this conversation with you today because it is so needed, so important. And our listeners know a lot about my personal story and journey going through infertility and then having a very complicated pregnancy and how much I personally talk to our listeners and my audience on social about the importance of advocating for yourself with every medical situation. And I truly believe that what you're doing and what you're building with spring fertility is so needed and so important for women. And I can't wait for everyone to hear all about it. So thank you so much for being here and taking the time to have this conversation today. Oh my God. Thank you so much for what you do. I obviously am so drawn to your podcast and, and everything you guys do. Of course, advocacy for women and especially women's health is critical. And it's been a, a long time coming that we all have voices and for trusting our intuition. And I, I think it's great. So thank you so much for what you guys do at Entrepreneurista. Oh, absolutely. Well, this is all about you today and what you're building. And to start, I would really love to hear a little bit about your background and what led you to a career in reproductive endocrinology. I love a creation story. So the truth is I come from a family of two physicians and they always loved what they did. They came home happy, inspired. And they always said to me, you know, if, if work doesn't feel like work, you can do it forever. And notoriously doctors do work forever. And I saw them and they were just intrinsically fulfilled. So I went to college knowing I was going to be a physician. They had no idea. And at some point when they started to look at my transcripts, they're like, this, this is kind of funny. What are you doing? And I said, I really want to be a physician. And this is, this is why you guys are so inspiring. 
I actually didn't even think that my parents when I was in college. They said, that's great, but let me, let's talk about this for real because medicine is hard and it can be a slog. And, and these are the areas that I think you would really like. And really they kind of laid it out for me before I even went to medical school. And then I went to medical school and I had some really great experience. I went to Mount Sinai. And so I had some really great teachers that knew a lot about infertility. And at that point, fertility preservation was something I was fascinated by because I went to medical school in the early 2000s and oncofertility, so women who had cancer, it really wasn't a thing, right? People knew about it and, and knew that it could happen, but they were afraid. There weren't big studies yet that were well-published or really well understood. And I thought that was going to be what I was going to do. I was going to be an oncofertility specialist. And then after medical school, I worked at Sloan Kettering for a little while with the breast cancer division. And I loved every minute of it, but it was a lot of stories of young women who had career aspirations or family aspirations put on hold. And it was a little bit depressing. And at the kind of towards the end of my time there, I went with a female surgeon who had three kids and was sort of like, who you want to be when you grow up. She had a big career, had a happy family. And she's like, this is a good story. Come into this good story. And I went in there and she said to this 36 year old, listen, you're in remission. You don't have breast cancer. You know, the world is your oyster. Be like, go grab it. And I said, great. When am I going to get my periods back? And the surgeon kind of sat back and said, uh, oh, you, you may never get your periods back. I don't know that being a mother is going to be in your cards. And the patient lost it. I mean, lost it and just said, I, if you would ever ask me, I would have told you that the most important thing in my life was to be a mother. I would have happy, really, truly happily waited a year or two years for any breast cancer treatment. This is all I ever wanted. What have you done to me? And it was really chilling to be in that kind of really emotional conversation where should have been the happiest day of everyone's life. And it was horrible. And the surgeon who was really wonderful, right? She was who you want as your doctor was flabbergasted and just that I never even thought about it. And she was mortified. And so that was going to be what I was going to do, right? I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to fix this. I'm a feminist. This is, we need to like know about this. And so I, that was it. And I mean, it's like the line from the notebook. She doesn't plan, she plots. Like I plotted my whole, like, so I got, I have to get here for a residency and here for fellowship and here for more training. And that was my obsession. And then once you get in and you're kind of in the thick of it and you're in training and residency, and oncofertility became something that was much more talked about and much more offered. And I didn't feel like it, it had to be such a strong mission. If something that I did, but wasn't my sole focus, then it became, okay, so what else in the world of fertility could I do? But I honestly always knew I wanted to do this from really like a feminist standpoint, which is women weren't being told about their options and they weren't being asked how much it mattered to them. And that to me infuriated me. And so here I am. <laughs> Many years later. <laughs> Thank you for, for sharing that. And I'm emotional even, even hearing that <laughs> because it is, you know, I, for me personally, I, I just can relate to that moment. And I remember when I was first diagnosed with MS, like trying to understand, like, is this going to affect me being able to have a family or, um, you know, will I have issues because of this? And I was so scared in, not understanding initially when I was diagnosed, like what was going to happen. And it's so important for women when they're, whether they're diagnosed with something that can be life-changing or just in general to really understand their body and what fertility is and what it means. And for so many years, I feel like many of us have, you know, been to just our regular gynecology appointments. And a lot of this isn't talked about. And finally, over the past few years, I feel like these conversations are finally being had and people are sharing stories and having these conversations and being able to find doctors like you who help these women really, you know, move forward and make decisions and have all of the knowledge and information is so, 
so important. So I want to hear, what did you do next? You know, how you got into the right residency program and then you had to look for a place to start working. Like how did, how did it all evolve? Oh my God. I mean, it's interesting. So the thing about medicine and a lot of, you know, the employees we have here all want to go to medical school or physician assistant school. And so I find myself constantly trying to give them like pearls of like what I wish I knew when I was their age, because it's truly once you're in it, it's really hard to stay motivated and keep focused because you're in debt, you're exhausted. The idea of more training just feels like your life is even further on pause and what do you do? So I, I really just thought about, so where do I want to be in five years and seven years and 10 years and, and how do I do my best to get there? So I went to Mount Sinai for medical school because I'm a New Yorker and I always leave New York and come back. And I really love everything about Sinai. And I love that there was a clinic, an infertility clinic associated with Sinai. But then you're in medical school and you feel like, how do you get into a good residency that will get you a good fellowship? And what people may not know is it's really hard to get into fertility fellowship. There are about 30 in the country. Many other fellowships have many, many more programs, but in fertility, it's really selective. And so this is my first kind of pearl is if you're a fertility doctor, they are well-trained. It doesn't matter if they went to Yale, Columbia, Harvard, it is hard to get in anywhere, guys. Okay. So wherever they went, it is enough. It is more than enough. That's a really hard thing to do. Knowing that, I say, I know that I want to go to a residency where I had enough time to do research that I could be impactful, learn more about my trade, but also have a little bit of my decisional capacity where I'm going to go for fellowship, where I try to be a commodity to get there. So I made the tough choice to take a year off in medical school and do research. So essentially a gap year, which wasn't that popular at the time, to do more research in a, a disease called endometriosis, which to me was always fascinating and probably misunderstood or poorly researched because it really affected women. And for a long time, it was just called hysteria, right? People didn't, they were like, oh, you're uncomfortable with your period, you're fine. And dismissed it for years and years and years. And I was fascinated by what, what could this be and how could it affect so many different facets of a woman's life. So I took a year off and did research with like a world-renowned endometriosis specialist, a man named Dr. Hugh Taylor at Yale. And I adored him and I adored his research lab. And I thought New Haven was okay. And I knew that they had a really good track record with matching a fertility physicians. And so I decided to try to go to Yale, which is not like an easy decision or even easy feat. Um, I always joke that I may not be the smartest person in the room, but I can like charm people and get there. And so I was like, I'm just going to charm them to accept me and like hook with them. <laughs> now I know that's called imposter syndrome. So now I know that. But at the time in my early twenties, I was like, I'm just going to trick them into taking me. So <laughs> I luckily got in and it worked. <laughs> my then it worked. I moved with my then boyfriend to New Haven, which is our first sign of like, are we serious? We're going to move in together. And we moved to Connecticut and I had a great time in residency. And it was a perfect residency because it allowed me to do research, but also get a lot of clinical experience. And in my, my thought was New York city programs. And again, New Yorker, love it. You do a lot of work, but not a lot of like learning. You just do a lot of work that has to happen. So New Haven worked beautifully for me. I was able to do research throughout residency, really get a great group of people who were behind me as mentors. And then the next plot was the where I didn't go to fellowship. And I needed to go back to New York City because four years away was enough. I had had to had to come back. And there are a couple of really great programs in New York. So I just looked around and I loved the people at Columbia. They were all tremendous. So I begged to come to Columbia and it, it's a match process, which also probably freaks people out. You don't get a choice. You basically interview it as many places as we'll have you and talk to you. And then you put like a rank list together and then it goes into some system, God knows where, and you're matched. It's probably like early Tinder. It's so wild. It's, it's wild. I, I always hear stories of that. It's like, I match at this place and I'm like, 
wait a second, can't people just pick where they want to go? You either get in or you don't. <laughs> you wish. I know it's it's really bizarre actually when you think about it. So I got so fortunate to match at Columbia and I then moved to New York City with my like teeny teeny baby at that time, right? So I had a baby my last year of residency, took two weeks of maternity leave and then moved to New York City and started fellowship really quickly and had a great time at Columbia. When I was at Columbia, the program was really changing. So there was a, like a regime shift and it was it was just a lot of politics. And so I, I had like two educations. I had the education of like the business and of medicine and then like what I do every single day. And it was eye-opening and it definitely affected my next step too, right? So then when I was leaving fellowship, where I was going to get a job was at the heel because I knew that I often wanted to be in New York City. New York City is highly competitive. And as people probably know, right, that there are lots of programs here, lots of infertility programs, aren't that many jobs though. And it's a little bit, can be a little bit cutthroat, right? Never meant to be malicious, but everyone, everyone is really competitive. And so you have to essentially sign like what we call non-competes that really only exist in medicine, meaning like once you get a job in New York City, you can't really go anywhere else, which is also so weird, right? You're, it's your first job. What if you don't like it, you know? And so I thought to myself, well, I don't know what I, where I want to work yet or who I want to be or who I, what kind of practice I want to work at. And so then I had the great idea to go to New Jersey because New Jersey, right? I could come back to New York if I wanted to. And it was only a commute; it would be okay. And also, you know, Army New Jersey at that time was really the practice that was putting on a ton of research. And I was fascinated by it. I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to be in the embryology lab. I really wanted to be a doctor, but still be a student and learn. And I talked to, at that time, the head of the practice and said, well, can I just be like a super fellow? Can I work, but still, you know, learn a lot? And I was like, sure, come, like be, be a super fellow. No, you have to work, but come, come. <laughs> so I decided to go to Army, New Jersey as my first job. I really wanted a high volume practice that was had cutting edge research where I could just learn a ton because at Columbia, admittedly, when I was there, it was tough. There were so many transitions and I found myself dealing with like politics more than patients, to be honest with you. When you're in med school, your fellowship, do they teach you courses on running a business? Because when you're a doctor, you're essentially running a business too. And they're not, they don't teach that. No. And there's a real dichotomy between academic and private practice. Right. And most of the practices in New York City, I would consider them hybrids, right? So yes, they're affiliated with universities, but really they're private practices. Honestly, you know, they are basically have their own profits and they make their own like salaries and they have a tax they pay at the hospital, but really they're, they're private businesses. That's like a fun conversation about like the future of fertility. But so there's always been this break point between like, are you academic? Are you private practice? You couldn't be both. Our major jury is one of the first practices that was a hybrid that was very academic, but absolutely private practice and had a fellowship and had autonomy. So I really wanted to go there and be around fellows. And so I was there for about three years, a little under three years, learned a ton, made great friends, great connections. But then ultimately, because of the size of the practice for me, I didn't like fill my bucket. Do you know what I mean? And like, I was like this, I love my patients, but I can't be who I want to for them by no fault of anyone's but the system. Everyone there has the best intentions, but it's just not for me. And simultaneously, spring was doing amazing in California. I think all of us everywhere were just watching the practice because it's really hard to start a new fertility practice have it be really successful financially and also with their outcomes. Like it just hadn't been done. I mean, no one had really seen that before. And you had these two really smart guys. So if we can do it better, we're going to disrupt the industry and we're going to have great patient experience and great patient outcomes and like watch. 
And I was obviously the East Coast just going, oh my God, like, can I move to California? That answer was a hard no for my husband. Like, no, we're not, come on. And then Peter Krosky, one of the founders called me and said, listen, we're going to open in New York. What do you think? I'm like, I think you're crazy. What are you talking about? You're open in New York. Like, no, you're not. It's such a great IVF city. You can't do that. And we talked for a couple of months and I was like, listen, I, you know, let me, let me think about it. I'm just really not sure. I'm really happy because I was. And then at some point I was like, but I, if he can do better, his friend can do better. And I can really feel like I'm meeting, seeing my patients every single day. So I can anticipate when they're having bad days and I can anticipate when they don't really understand necessarily what's in front of them. And I can just talk to them, make my job actually so much easier because I spent many, many late nights when I was working in Jersey calling patients to basically recap the day and explain the scan or explain the blood work, which if I just could see them, it'd be done, but I couldn't. So I actually worked much harder in a weird way. And I was psyched to think that like spring could be in New York. And also spring was a practice that I wanted all of my friends to go to, right? Pretty much all of my friends in infertility, right? Just because we were all about the same age and had big careers and had timelines we wanted to meet. And they, I essentially was like their surrogate doctor. I was the one always explaining things and telling them that things were okay or things weren't okay and to advocate and don't feel guilt about this. And they all just needed spring. They all just needed a place where they didn't have to block out four hours of time, right? They weren't just like waiting, waiting, waiting for potentially not your doctor to see you, to not really understand what's happening, to get a phone call from someone that didn't even know you, maybe mispronounced your name, maybe, you know, all of these things. And so then I was like, you know what, Peter, I think you're right. I think spring in New York is a great idea, right? Like this is really smart. And I was leap of faith. And this to your point about business and medicine, I knew nothing about business. I was like, this is terrifying. I'm doing pretty well. My job isn't that hard in New Jersey. What am I going to do? And, but ultimately you have one life. I want to be happy. I, I want to feel really fulfilled. I want my patients to be happy. And so I jumped and <laughs> opened spring this summer, this past summer, and right after a pandemic. And it, it's been amazing. And I feel like it's everything we want it to be. And I am so proud of it and so thrilled that we can really like meet our expectations, which is we're going to take really good care of you and we're going to get you pregnant. And if we don't get you pregnant, we're still going to be your partners with us. And we're going to tell you that, you know, maybe it, maybe it'll work somewhere else, right? We, we want to support you through this. It's never going to be in any way like competitive or not about the patient, right? It's always about the patient. And sometimes I think doctors forget that. Thank you for sharing all of that. It is so important and such an incredible story and message of hope and change and taking that leap to, I say all the time in business, like just start, just do it. And, and you figure it out as you go along. And, you know, you had the background to be able to see like what not to necessarily do at some of these really large practices and clinics where from my personal experience, because the first clinic I was at was, was like that. It felt like a factory. I was just a number and did not have that personalized experience. And I ended up leaving that practice to go to a different practice prior to spring opening up, because this was a few years ago before you were there. Otherwise I probably would have ended up with you. <laughs> and really, you know, it took me realizing like, wait a second, I don't have to just be at a practice because they have this service. There's other options that are out there. And there are amazing doctors like yourself and spring that care about the patients. Like as women, we don't have to settle for 
just any doctor, any practice, because they perform a service, we deserve to be able to work with our doctors like partners to be able to have conversations and, and help us through everything. So I'm so excited that you took the leap and you're building this practice centered around patient experience and really helping women and families have the family that, that they want and deserve. So, so thank you. I mean, and it's, it's hard. And a lot of these practices, the visions are wonderful. They really, they're smart and they're wonderful. It's the system. That's really the problem. And it's too hard. You know, it's better than me because I know nothing about business to like reset the system because if it's working, why break it? Right. If it, if it's doing its job and it's profitable, no one really wants to go in and fix it. And that's why spring a little bit like a disruptor, right? Where you just flipped it and said, well, what if we made it about the patient's schedule and the patient's life and not the patient's life, right? Arguably my schedule is more challenging and really exact, but it can be done and it can work. It would just, it's impossible to go in and, and redo it. And I, I think that's really like eye-opening. And I, I have such great colleagues in New York City and everywhere. And it's in no way to disparage what they do or how they do it. But I, I think there is this understanding that you can either go to a large practice with great outcomes and maybe compromise your experience, or you can go to a small practice with maybe mediocre outcomes, but really have a connection with your physician and, and feel really well cared for and probably eventually have success. And that's kind of been the choice, at least in New York. And it never even dawned on anybody that you could have both, right? You, you don't have to make this choice. And I think it's great. And at the moment, I think people, and I get it, it's, it's like scary to try something new. I'm just, I'm as much guilty of it as anyone else, but I think people kind of understand that, oh, oh really? Like, we can do that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Promise, we can do it. Um, so it's, it's fun. It's exciting and terrifying, right? <laughs> it's I, I get it. And, and look, you know, more people just have to know about it. And that's why awareness is so important and sharing stories like yours and spreading this message and why I continue to, to talk about it all of the time. You know, I'm two and a half years you know, out from having my daughter, Molly, but I still continue to talk about our story and journey and what we went through because women and people are going through this every single day and looking for those resources. So for them to know that spring exists and that you're here and able to, to help them is super important. Why do you think it's important for women to take control of their fertility? I I mean, so it's really twofold right? First, there's like this fertility preservation. The the funny thing about what I do is it's really two different patient populations. There's a fertility preservation population. So that's women who are freezing their eggs or freezing embryos with a partner. And then the infertility population. And they're kind of treated in the same vein, right? And it's it's hard to have a waiting room full of women that are in second places in their lives. I think fertility, unfortunately, it's attached to your age. It's just biology. And the system hasn't caught up with the fact that none of us are considering having kids at 15 or 16 or 17, right? Our, our lives have shifted a little bit and the body doesn't understand that yet. And I, I always joke, if you could tell your body not to get release your eggs in your teens and hold them for your 20s and 30s, that'd be great, but you can't. So I, I think it's just important to think this through a little bit. And I think a lot of women want to put their head in the sand about it or think that they're going to be fine and not really think about it. I really believe that knowledge about your fertility is going to give you power, but honestly, options. It's like about optionality. It's understanding where am I at now? Where do I want to be in a couple of years of my fertility? Do I want to have kids? Do I not want to have kids? If I know that I don't want to have them, should I plan for them now? Because I'm, I'm certain that they're going to come. And I think this is just one more thing that women can do to alleviate stress and anxiety and let them really ascend in whatever field they are, whether that means you just want to travel more or you want to you know, really have a big career. It doesn't have to be one narrative and that's the other misconception. It's just so that you don't have to give anything up. 
right? And that has certainly, I mean, I was at dinner with other like moms in my daughter's class last night. And one of them was up for partnership at a law firm, but she got unexpectedly pregnant on her honeymoon, but she was up for review. And I have no idea about law at all. And she went to the you know, managing partner's office and said, listen, I'm, I'm pregnant, but I still want to go for partnership. And he's like, no, 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 you have to sit a year out. Like you, you can't go for partnership while you're pregnant. That's, you're never going to get it. You know, you have to sit a year out. But by the way, I'll deny this if you say this to everybody. And so she's like, I just resigned in a rage because I was furious. But she's like, but now I can't get back to work because now I have the stigma on me that I walked away from a, a firm when I was up for partnership. She's like, but I, I have a beautiful child. But like, that was really frustrating. I'm thinking, oh my God, right? Like, your career was just sabotaged because you're a woman who got pregnant. And this happens way too often, right? Way too often. Certainly I can think of any career where they like love it when you go on maternity leave, right? Like we're more open, but no one's ever like, oh, great, fantastic. So I think this is, these are all the reasons to think about your fertility, kind of plot your life and then make a choice. It doesn't have to, it doesn't mean you have to do it when you're 25. You can just say, okay, at 30, I'm going to consider this because Unfortunately, there are costs associated with all of this stuff. So I never would suggest that people spend more money than they need to. But I just think it will, it just alleviates so much of a burden and stress that is unfair that it's on women's shoulders anyway. So to consider it, I think will just help everybody. But that's hard because often when I have this talk, and I think we talked about this a little bit, that's not a sales pitch, right? It's unfortunate in some ways that I make money off of this, right? That's annoying to me too, right? But that doesn't diminish the message, right? My message is everyone should think about this and learn about this and consider what they want. And it's not for everybody. You might just want to wait to try until you're 40. That's okay too. It's just knowing that and just making sure that you're making that decision with your eyes wide open. Yep. Just having all of the knowledge and information and then making a decision based on that information without, you know, just not knowing, and then you can't make a decision and then you're surprised later on. So that's definitely a a wonderful message. Next up, you'll hear Dr. Fisher explain fertility preservation and the egg freezing process. I would love to hear a little bit about the process of opening up a brand new clinic. I know starting a business and opening up something new is such a huge undertaking and there's so many learning lessons. Can you share with me a little bit about what that process was like? Um, terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I had such a fantastic relationship with the founders of Spring and they really let me in on the very early stages of how do you pick real estate? How do you build a lab? What are you considering? Who do you hire first, right? Who is employee number one? What's the most important you know, person to get on board? And then where do you go from there? And we started this, or thinking about this before the pandemic. So for like, think about a monkey wrench, right? So New York City real estate was a fortune. We knew we wanted to be in New York. We didn't really know where. We had different neighborhoods in mind. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hit. And we're like, oh my God, right? What do we do? Very few buildings want medical offices in them. That's number one, because people don't want people in scrubs in and out of an office, right? So they get really freaked out by that. It feels very hospital. So a lot of places that we thought were great, were like, no, no medical, only commercial. And that takes a little bit of time to figure out because I kind of hook you and want you to come and see and sort of spend money doing it. And then like, oh, actually, no. With the pandemic, we were able to get some really great lease options. And so we actually built a much bigger practice than was our intention. We thought we would have a, a relatively small space, super small, but not that large. And we would go from there. But Spring had 
I would say maybe disadvantage of growing really quickly in their San Francisco office. And so if anyone ever goes there, you will see that it feels like a clinic that exploded quickly. So all the offices are like cut in half and there are tons of people in like a small space on like the admin end. And from that lesson, they're like, you know what? We're going to build big, right? If you build it, they will come. We don't want to make the same mistake. So we were looking for a big space in New York City and the pandemic helped us because we got a really good deal on rent on a really big space. So that was the first thing, which is like, okay, we, this, with this, we still have this much money to spend on the next thing. So what's, what's our process? What's important to us? And for us, we really wanted the space to feel both medical because they don't want to feel too much like you're in my living room, right? Because it's, you want to make sure that there's some sort of relationship there that understands its patient physician, but not so sterile that you walk in and you feel like you're in a hospital, right? And so there, there's got to be a balance. So we wanted to say with light, so windows that felt like it was in an area that was a lot of commerce, a lot of traction, easy to get to. And so we all find that in Bryant Park, which is terrific. So we have two floors in an office space in Bryant Park, second and third floor. And so once we had the space, once we had the concept, then we started carving out where do you put the lab? Because we felt very strongly about having a lab on site. And people feel differently about this, but we certainly, Springs Lab is really unique because they do different things. There is a little bit of a secret magic sauce. And we, we wanted to have that lab on site and we wanted to maintain what we did in California, which is this really a running theme of Springs transparency. So our lab here is encased in glass. So patients can see in, it's kind of like a fishbowl or per embryologist. So you can see what people are doing. And it, I think it's really comforting. You know, when you're sitting and waiting for your embryo transfer, and you see the embryologist kind of looking at the embryo, adding oil to it, you know, moving around the dish. I think it gives a sense of calm because you can finally see it, right? It's not behind this black box. So the build, lessons of the build are that you are always going to make mistakes. Right? We screwed a couple of things up that cost us a lot of money. We, when you have an embryology lab, you have to get gas in and the gas is expensive. The delivery windows in New York City are weird, right? Buildings don't let you bring it up. So there are a lot of factors in it. And so all of that was really good lessons of like, where do you spend? Where do you save? What's your timeline? What's really important? So that all happened. And that was great. Then it became, how do you hire people? How do you recruit people? Who do you want? Is it only a skill? Like, are you only looking for people that are really good technicians? Or does it matter about the community of the office? Right? And I feel very strongly as do all the other doctors at Spring, but the community matters. So we all do our best work and we're all supported. And so you don't necessarily want someone who is going to be a bull in the china shop. You don't want someone in, in your community that is potentially really great at what they do, but isn't a great colleague. So we just, we're really focused on finding the right team. And I'm so proud of the team we hired at Spring, our founding team. As some of them leave, like we have the medical assistants going off to medical school or PA school. It's simultaneously so exciting, but also heartbreaking because we all started this together, right? We all opened up boxes. We all hung artwork. We all chose the artwork. So that's a little sad, but kind of wonderful. So Building the team is the next stage. Like, who are your leaders? And then from and trust them and then trust them to hire their team. So this is all stuff that you don't learn. I never learned this in fellowship or medical school or, or at my first job. I didn't have insight into it, but I knew that, I mean, all physicians, you run teams. It's what you do, right? You're a chief resident. You're constantly doing things like this. So I knew what environment I wanted to cultivate. And I felt like I had a pretty good sense of people when I talked to them and knew, you know, who what's going to be motivated or who I could motivate if they didn't seem motivated, you know, who had the best intentions. And we were so fortunate to hire a killer team before our space was even finished. So we all started working at a WeWork, which we joke about because it was like 
we hired this whole staff and they show up one day in like a small we work. I'm like, we promise we're legit. We promise. <laughs> there's a, there's yes. a real office coming. <laughs> yes. And those were, those were like the best days. They were just great days of training and learning the electronic medical record system and truly like picking out artwork and picking out desk chairs and all of these things. So I would say that opening a practice is a ton of work. It's a ton of work, but it's so worth it in the end when you just can walk around and you, you just, you feel such pride. And I'm like so honored when any patient will ever say, I love this space. It feels so comfortable. And I'm thinking, oh, we almost look like the teal chair and not the mint green. <laughs> I'm so happy that you like the mint green. Like this, I mean, these are the crazy the little things. They're important. It's the little things. So I think that thing is one, give yourself grace because things are going to be messed up. Let it kind of roll off. Expensive mistakes are going to be made. Try to forget about it, even though you're like, ah. Write it down so you don't make the mistake again. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's the other thing. No, it's so true, especially yeah. when you think about a company that's, considering scaling, right? So the hope is that we can make more springs, right? And give her this amount of care in, in different cities. And so we are, we're making kind of our book of like, don't screw this up. Don't screw this up. We did this really well. This came up because also every city has little nuances. Like New York is different from California. And, you know, some things we knew that, some things we didn't know it. But we got really lucky. We came away pretty unscathed with builds and with inspections and everything. And we got really lucky with the staff we hired. Like all the employees are amazing. But there are some like, hey, we, we should have done this differently and, and better. And so that's fun. It's it's a different job, right? It's a different job than what I would consider an employee doc job. It's not for everybody. I have really, I mean, the fellows that I worked with are wonderful and they call me all the time to say, what should I do? And some of them really want something like this. And some of them really want to work at a clinic and just kind of walk into a practice. And this takes a different kind of stomach, right? It's You have to be okay with risk and you, you have to be okay with failure, Failure for doctors is hard. <laughs> so I, I think having good mentors. I feel like you have to go back to Columbia and recommend they have a course and you teach it on the business of medicine because I can't teach it, but I would love, I would love to, I mean, <laughs> I would love it. I would love it. I, cause I've so many of my friends are in these industries. And so I just joke, I'm like, guys, I don't know anything about anything. I mean, I am terrible at this. I didn't even have like a life insurance policy until like a month ago. So. <laughs> you know, you're being honest and transparent and sharing all of this. And most business owners are the same, you know, no one knows anything when they first start, you learn everything as you go and you talk to other people. And this is why we have this podcast to share these stories and learning lessons. Like this is how we're all able to, to learn and grow together and why we have our entrepreneurs elite community, because it's hard to do it. You can't do it alone. Like you, you need community, you need support and look, all of the learning lessons that you've had from launching the new practice as like you said as spring scales and grows you know have this playbook to go to the next location and you have the learning lessons of what, what worked well and what didn't work well so thank you for for sharing all of that it's it's super helpful i do want to know what did it feel like the day you opened the official doors at spring just such excitement i mean ironically we opened it on rosh hashanah which is such a random move on our part in New York City, and it just felt like just such excitement. We just, and we still feel it. I mean, it's like, there's this buzz constantly, right? When patients get pregnant, everyone is like jumpy. I mean, the, the clinic is just so invested. It feels great. It just, I love, love coming to work, which is incredible. I, I just really, I love what I do. I love who I work with. I love my patients. I love my city. I, I have zero complaints, zero. I just feel really fortunate. 
Well, I'm sure your your patients feel it too. I feel it just seeing you and, and chatting with you and, and doing this recording and the conversations that we've had. And it's just so important, like I share, I talk about all the time to be able to work with a doctor that you love and you trust and you feel connected to and that you can have these real conversations with because the going through infertility or even, you know, just going through the egg freezing process, if you're just trying to, you know, be proactive it's a overwhelming journey and it's important to have that support from your doctor and be able to, to trust your doctor and be able to talk to them. I would love if you can share, you know, a lot of our, our listeners are, many of them are actually younger and we actually have a lot of listeners who are in college who listen to our podcast because they're looking to start a business one day and get inspired. And many of them I've, you know, I've talked to them personally, do not know a lot about fertility preservation and the egg freezing process. Can you share a little bit about what that process actually looks like and who is a good candidate? Mm -hmm. So what's important for all of us to know is that women, unlike men, right, women are born with all of our eggs and we actually lose most of them before we're, we're even born. So you lose most of them inside your mom's uterus. And then before you have your first period, you've, you've lost a good number as well. And so that's the fixed pool. There's no way to make new eggs. Sperm are totally different. Men start making sperm when they hit puberty and they're regenerated about every three months. And so given that, that this resource is diminishing over time, the hope is, the idea is to really freeze time, to preserve your egg, to preserve your fertility for later use. Now, the woman who is in her early to late 20s considering this versus the woman in her mid to late 30s considering this are also different populations. And so the idea that egg freezing is really empowering and really wonderful, it absolutely is for a certain population. But for a different population, it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel so great. It feels like a failure. And I wish that weren't true, right? But it, it does. I think my patients who are older are coming in and they never wanted to meet me. They never wanted to be across from me. And so it's balancing this and kind of meeting patients where they're at. And I try to not just put on my like poly perfect hat and go, this is so great. It's so empowering. Yeah, it is for some. But for others, it's really just a necessity. And so I think that's important. For younger women who are doing this, it's a way to just not think about it, right? To just say, I know I have kids. It's not really on my radar right now. Let me do it. And for women who are older, it may be that too, or it may be that your life hasn't played out the way you wanted it to. And, and that sucks. And you have to kind of grieve that, but you don't have to give up your fertility. You don't have to give up your dreams, right? Because your life hasn't worked out the way that maybe you envisioned it when you were seven. That's my first PSA, which is that the narratives around egg freezing are, are really different. And the women that I meet are really different kinds of women. Now, who's a good candidate? I get asked all the time. Any menstruating woman is a good candidate because as long as there are eggs to be retrieved and frozen, you can do this. Now, what does that mean about success, right? If we're freezing one egg, your chance of having a pregnancy from that one egg is lower than if we we're freezing 15 or 20 for sure. But one is better than zero. So I oftentimes talk about what do these eggs mean to you? Are they your backup plan? Or are they just because you want to have some hope? And I make no judgments. Right? People always ask me, well, is there, is there too old? No, right? As long as you're having regular cycles and you understand the chance of success, I'm fine, right? Again, I'm not going to hoodwink anyone into believing that if you freeze one egg with me at 45, that you're going to be a mother of twins because probably not, right? But if, if you know we have an open, honest conversation, the chance of success might be less than 2%, but that's not zero and you need that, I'm all for it, right? I am no way a paternalistic physician. I am just a transparent physician. And I think being well-counseled is really critical. 
So best candidate is, is really anyone that wants to consider this. Now, I would say that teenagers shouldn't do it, right? But women in, in their mid to late 20s and beyond that, up until about 46. And the reason I say 46 is there hasn't been a documented live birth from an egg older than 46. So that's just my personal. Now, do I do some patients come to me at 47, 48? They do. And, and we talk about it, right? And I'm, I'm never like, uh, this is the rule. And so therefore you can't do it. That's not how spring practice is. It's very individualized. And that's also important for people to know. Egg freezing though. So when you have a cycle, when you bleed, that's your brain actually getting pretty mad at your uterus that you're not pregnant, right? Because the whole menstrual cycle is set up to get pregnant. So when the brain recognizes it didn't work, it gets pissed off, tells your uterus to cramp and get rid of that lining and tells your ovaries to release as many eggs as they can spare. So that's the constant level of ovarian reserve is what's your body going to release each month? This is variable from woman to woman. There are certainly averages. So when we're in our 20s, somewhere between 10 and 20. When we're in our 30s, it's somewhere between 5 and 15, and it, it will change over time. So that is the amount that's released each month when you're actively bleeding. And then one is going to get recruited. And that one is not the golden egg that's been studied. It is just the greediest egg. And the other ones essentially will disintegrate throughout the cycle. And so what egg freezing is, is it goes in and says, you know what? What if I didn't limit your body's ability to grow an egg? What if I gave an excess of that message and they could all grow? What I can't do is make new ones, but I can use the ones that are released and essentially earmarked for destruction and grow them all. And how we do that is with injectable hormones that are synthetic versions of your natural hormones. So I get asked all the time, what are the side effects? The medications themselves don't have side effects. The consequences of the medications do. So when you grow more eggs, you feel it. Your ovaries physically expand, but it's not because of the medicine. It's because of what the medicine is doing. The medicine is in and out of your system in 24 hours, which is why, unfortunately, the shots are every day. Yes. And they're every day for you. You're like, yep, yep the <laughs> shots are every day for usually about 10 to 12 days. You know, there's some variability, but that's about it. They start to suck much more the longer you do them because you might get bruises, you might be tender. But I really try to say anybody can do anything for 14 days. You might not like it, but you can do it and it's worth it. So the other thing about having a good relationship with your care team and certainly your provider is we are moral support. We have seen it all. I can tell when someone's about to break down and I do my best to give them my pep talk, which is this is going to be fine. This is going to be over soon and it's going to be well worth it. But keeping people in the game is critical. Right. It's just, and if you don't have that support and that's another way you talk about it, people give up and certainly more in the fertility world, but fertility preservation too. So 10 to 12 days and then the egg retrieval, it's kind of like having your wisdom teeth pulled. It's about a 20 minute procedure. I mean, tell me if I'm underselling it, but it's 20 minutes. Uh, you're asleep. We do it vaginally. So you never see any cuts or scars and that you certainly are crampy and bloated after, and you probably feel worse the two days afterwards, but you rebound, you rebound quickly. Um, and then the eggs are like kind of like Twinkies. They can be frozen for decades and they're just as good. I haven't had a Twinkie in a long time, but <laughs> if I had a Twinkie, I think it would be the same. And that's it. And then, but when you freeze your eggs, the way that you would get pregnant from them, because I get asked this a lot too, is with IVF. So egg freezing is basically the first half of an IVF cycle. It's the egg creation. The second part of IVF is the embryo creation. So putting sperm with the egg. So when you do egg freezing, you're doing the front end first. And then the back end of it actually doesn't involve you at all anymore, which is great, right? We don't need you to thaw your eggs. You don't have to do any more shots. 
And so that's really nice. The downside of doing it when you're really young and why I try to deter people sometimes is because you pay an annual storage fee because we're storing your eggs, just like when you have furniture. And so it's a calculus, which is if money is of no consequence, which is great, sure, do it as soon as possible, right? Because it's fine. But if there's if there's any thought that you know about a thousand dollars a year, it's a little bit less, would really hurt you financially. No, don't risk it. And I have this talk all the time. It's not as if anyone that comes to see me, I'm like, oh yeah, do this, do this right now. No, we, we talk about it. We talk about when's the right time. What do they mean to you? Do you have a big trip plan? What's going on? So that's another reason not to be afraid to come in, right? It's not a hard sell. It's not about that. It's about fertility preservation. Yep. Can you share like a percentage breakdown? For example, if someone retrieves 10 eggs and now those eggs are frozen and now five years later, uh, they want to do IVF after the thaw, how many can they expect to make it? And then how many can they expect to fertilize? And then how many can they expect to be healthy? Like, what are those numbers? Because uh, when I've talked to women before who've gone to freeze their eggs, you're like, oh, I did a cycle. I got seven eggs and I'm, and I'm done. And it's like, wait a second, like from everything I know, you need more than that just to make sure that this is all going to be worth it. And I think that conversation is really important to understand like what those numbers look like and what those like average percentages are. Not that I believe always in averages because I've always been an anomaly for everything, but here I do think it's important to have a, a baseline. <laughs> I think it totally is. And I think there's a misconception that one egg is one pregnancy. And of course that's not true. There's a lot of attrition in this process. Um, so the first thing is that this matters where you do this. So where you freeze your eggs, where you do IVF matters. The lab really matters. The physician, of course, the protocol, yes, but the lab matters. So spring, we are exceedingly proud of our egg thaw and then pregnancy rates. And we're so proud of it because we have, we have a lot of data from women who donate their eggs to us. We have a frozen egg bank. And so we can extrapolate, okay, so at 24, 28, if you're freezing your eggs, how likely is it to have a pregnancy? Because we have thawed those eggs and see egg freezing is still relatively new in this world of medicine. It's, you know, been approved as the non-experimental for about a decade, but few women have really come back in, in numbers high enough to actually talk about real data from it. Right? So if I freeze my eggs at 35, what does that look like? What does it mean? And I wish we had more of it, but we really don't. So we're, we're really leaning on women who have donated their eggs. And so women who have donated their eggs, that's not necessarily the same for someone who's like 37. So then that data comes from women who have frozen their eggs because they have a medical issue. The question is, will that medical issue affect their egg quality? So there are a lot of uncertainties here and it's hard to go through them all to be honest when you're going, when you're doing this. But in general, think about a fourth of the eggs that you freeze are going to turn into embryos. That's like a good rule of thumb. The difference there is of those embryos, how many of them are going to be genetically normal changes with age. And so when we are younger, it's about 75% are going to be normal. And as we get older, it just goes down. And so when we're above 40, it's about 30% that are going to be normal. So it's a wide continuum. When we think about, well, how many embryos do I need for each pregnancy? In general, it's two, two normal embryos. And the reason we say that is that transfer rates are not even close to 100%, right? They're about 65 to 70% at some of the better clinics and some really good clinics, it's like 40%. So we always want to hedge our bets and say, well, I want two embryos for each pregnancy you want. And so I often tend on doing that kind of reverse calculation with patients, which is in the why is so important to me, which is what are these eggs? And I have patients tell me these eggs are my whole family and I want four children. I'm going, 
Okay, all right. So this is our number, that's how we're gonna do it so that we know going into it. Um, and sometimes you don't really know. And so then when you have seven, you have to talk that and say, so from seven, this is what I think is realistic. And do you have it in you to do another cycle? And there is such a thing as too many eggs, right? Nobody wants to have a hundred eggs frozen and nor should you need to, right? But it also it speaks to risk, which is how risk averse are you? How much of a guarantee do you want? If I tell you your chance of pregnancy is 85%, are you comfortable or do you want 95%? And these are talks I have day in and day out. And we have on our website an egg freezing calculator. And it's based on Spring's internal data. And then also two large studies to give sense, like just general senses of, so if you freeze Spring's kind of anywhere, sorry, you freeze like anywhere versus that Spring, what are the differences? And you just input your age and just randomly pick numbers of eggs, right? You'll have no knowledge of your own reserve, but just put in 10, put in 20, and it will give you the chance of pregnancy, one pregnancy or two pregnancies. And I find that tool so helpful when it comes to like game planning cycle numbers. Well, we will definitely be linking out to that calculator in our show notes. Uh, I love all of the education that you have for so many women and families because education is power. Like we need this information. We need this content to be able to make the the most educated decisions. And I didn't have any of this when I was going through everything. I was flying blind and, you know, learning everything as, as I, as I went along and I'm, I'm just so you know, relieved and happy to see everything that, that you're building and have built with spring because it's just so needed. So I think I've said thank you 10 times throughout this interview so far, but it's, I really, it's, it's just so needed and so refreshing to just hear you sharing all of this and being able to be such a resource to people. So, so thank you. Thank you. Coming up, Dr. Fisher shares the importance of trusting your gut. All right. This is my favorite segment here that you didn't know anything about. We're going to do a few rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. It's about you. It's easy. I promise you can answer them. <laughs> First question. What is your favorite healthy snack? Oh my God. I don't, I don't eat healthy snacks. Um, nuts. Love it. What is an app on your phone that you can't live without? MTA. Ah, how would your friends or patients describe you in three words? Okay. Organized, funny, committed. And finally, do you have any hidden talents? Oh my God. I wish. Um, no, I'm a pretty good cook. I'm a good cook and a good baker, but I have no time for it anymore, <laughs> but I was once upon a time good at that. <laughs> I love it. So I would love to know, like, what does a typical day look like for you when you're working and going into the office? And then what's your life like if you're, if you're not on call? <laughs> Sure. Um, yeah. So I wake up at about six, usually with like an elbow in my face for my four and a half year old son. And I snooze a thousand times. I'm not like a up and exercise person. I'm like a roll out of bed and put on what I have on the immediately available to me, um, grab a cup of coffee, come to work. And, and then mostly it's from like seven to three. It's about every like 15 minutes, every 30 minutes, every hour, I'm, I'm seeing patients or having meetings and it's really hustle and bustle. And I love it. If I remember to eat, that's fabulous. If I don't, I steal one of our like big bars or sodas from our waiting room. Maybe we shouldn't say that, but it's true. <laughs> and then days then at about five, I head home and I try to make something healthy for my kids to eat. It's usually mac and cheese or yogurt or something horribly unhealthy like pancakes. <laughs> and then it's like decompressing with honestly a trashy romance novel 
or Bravo TV show and going to bed by about like nine or nine 30. Now, do I wish what I had said was I get up and I exercise and I like make a green smoothie and I'm like really healthy. I do. Okay. I really do, but it's not <laughs> who I am right now. <laughs> and that's okay. You know, we're, we're all doing the best we could do every single day. It's what I, <laughs> right. Yeah. And if I'm not working, it's wandering around the city. My favorite thing about New York is just going to neighborhoods and like people watching and, and taking it all in. And I, it's just, I live here despite the fact that it is so expensive and so insane because I love the energy of New York. I could never leave. I love that. I know I tried recruiting you down to uh, open a Miami practice. But, uh... I know, maybe, maybe I'll do Miami. <laughs> is there anything that you wish you knew when you were first starting your career in medicine that you know now that you wish you knew? Trust your gut. Mm. I think a lot of people have really great intentions when they give you advice, but you just never know like what their lens is that they're looking through. And I, ne I never believe it's malice. It's just what they know. It's really like the box that they know. So throughout my training and years, I've gotten a lot of advice from people and some of it was really great and some of it was really bad. And I, I don't, I think they really meant well by it, but I would just say, trust you, right? Trust your intuition, trust your gut. And then you're never going to have regrets. If you just follow someone blindly, different story. And so that's a lesson that I learn like every day though, right? Every day I'm like, oh my God, I should have just known better. But I think that's really important to have intuition. I've obviously like well-vetted researched, but just trust yourself. I, I, would, I would say that to anybody. Yeah. I love that. I, I completely agree. What would you say, this is my last question. What does being an entrepreneur mean to you? I think not being afraid to take risk, right? Not, and also really wanting to pay it forward. I love that, right? This, there's no shame in asking questions and kind of exposing your uncertainty. And I think we're all terrified of that. But there are such a community, especially of women, who are actually trying to help each other. And I think if we could just be more open about that and understand that, like, we got each other, right? And all of us together are so much stronger than us individually. And that's it, right? So trust yourself, take risk and lean on us. So true. And thank you so much for sharing that and for sharing your, your whole story and, and everything you have accomplished and the business that you have created and are continuing to build. It is so needed. And I'm honored to be able to, to chat with you and, and share your story and continue the conversation. And we'll definitely be referring friends of mine, uh, over to spring and to meet with you because it's just so important to have doctors in a practice that you can truly trust. So thank you. Where can everyone find you and follow you and follow spring on social? How should they connect with you? So we are at hello at springfertility.com. The New York City practice is in Bryant Park. We have a website, just springfertility.com. Um, we have Instagram, springfertility. I have an Instagram, which is poultry, but Keith is Fisher MD. And that's the best way to get in touch with us. And we'd love to meet you and we'd love to help you out. Thank you so much. And we'll link out to all of those links in our show notes so everyone can find you. Thank you again for being here. I'm Stephanie, and this is the best business meeting I've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entrepreneurista.com and connect with us on Instagram at entrepreneurs. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entrepreneurista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entrepreneurista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead. Mm -hmm.